This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On our episode today, I am joined by Dr. Liz Cox, who's a reproductive psychiatrist in private practice based out of Raleigh, North Carolina. She's been in practice for over 10 years, previously serving as medical director for UNC Women's Mood Disorders at Wake Med North in Raleigh and residency education director in Women's Mood Disorders at UNC in the Department of Psychiatry in Chapel Hill. She is now an adjunct faculty as well. There are a lot of questions and frankly, misconceptions that people have about medication and the treatment of maternal mental health, perinatal mental health conditions during pregnancy and postpartum. And I love when we have reproductive psychiatrists on because we need this education. People need to understand how mental health conditions are thought about and how carefully they are thought about uh, during the reproductive period of time, and that there are treatments that are available. A lot of people have anxiety about taking medication of any kind during pregnancy, let alone, you know, including all of the stigma that comes along with mental health and medications for mental health. It's just too much for people to wade through, and really you need the information in order to make an informed decision about your care. And Dr. Cox has authored numerous scholarly publications, including textbooks about the treatment of maternal mental health conditions. And she is really passionate about decreasing that stigma of maternal mental health conditions, as well as increasing awareness and appropriate treatments. We're going to go over a lot of great information about reproductive psychiatry and the options that people have and the importance of sleep and really so much more. So let's hear from Dr. Cox. Welcome, Dr. Cox. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited and interested to talk to you about medication and reproductive psychiatry because people have a lot of questions about it, a lot of misconceptions about it, as I'm sure you know all too well. And, you know, people feel really empowered with information. So I'm glad you're going to give us a lot of that today. 
Yeah. Yeah. So please start. I'd love to know how you got into this specialty. Well, so in medical school, I didn't know that reproductive psychiatry was a niche. I thought maybe at the time I might want to do child and adolescent psychiatry. And I went to residency at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And there we have the perinatal psychiatric inpatient unit, which Mm -hmm. is one of three units in the United States. And that experience and training, I met my mentor, Dr. Samantha Meltzer Brody, Dr. David Rubino was our chair at the time. And I was exposed to reproductive psychiatry and just fell in love with this particular area and particularly was drawn to the fact that these conditions, while they're so common, are extremely treatable. Mm -hmm. And it's so rewarding to see somebody get better and to be a part of that care process and help their whole family. So that's kind of how I started. Yeah, I'm interested too. Thank you for that. And I'm interested to talk, just go back a little bit in your training prior to that, to understand like how much information or education or anything did you get on reproductive psychiatry in medical school or other part of your training prior to this? In medical school, it was probably pretty minimal. Now there is a women's mood disorders department. I trained in medical school at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. And At the time, there was not a women's mood disorders department. Now they have one and Dr. Connie Biles, I believe is still there and wonderful. And so I'm sure the medical students now are being trained on this. But at the time, that did not exist and was not a big part of my education as a medical student. In residency, it was a, a big part of our training. Everybody rotate through the inpatient unit. And then I also rotated through, you know, outpatient clinics and then did additional things to specialize and focus in this particular area. So that's where I really got the bulk of my knowledge. But many medical students in many areas don't get any exposure. I think in lots of organizations, there are, it's more and more common where we're seeing women's mood disorders departments mm-hmm. um, at many institutions now, but not everywhere. And it's a growing field. Yeah, I think you guys in North Carolina are particularly lucky, maybe even spoiled to be able to have this near you because it's just not available everywhere. And Chapel Hill and the work that's being done in North Carolina is like, feels like a really big hub because the work that's being done there isn't really being done everywhere else. It's kind of a hub of a lot of reproductive psychiatry support for help seekers, but also research. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we really are lucky in that way that we're able to study things and treat so many patients. People fly over from across the United States to get care in Chapel Hill. So it's a a great place to train. And you mentioned inpatient unit. That is a specifically Mm -hmm. mother baby unit for mental health? Well, it's specifically for perinatal, so pregnant and postpartum women. And there are extended visiting hours for the baby to come. But it does not, like in London, in the UK, there are mother-baby units where mom and baby are hospitalized together. In the United States, usually it's just mom and then these extended hours and we'll do family therapy and attachment work and things like that on the unit, but the baby does not spend the night. So in terms of inpatient units, there are just a handful or less in the US. A handful, yes. I UNC was the first. Now there's also one in New York and one in California. And there may be, we need to double check um, (laughs) the facts. There might be more now, but for a long time, there was just three. Yeah, hopefully there are more. 
I mean, you would know, you have your finger on the pulse of how reproductive psychiatry is growing, not only as a specialty, but also people even knowing that it is a specialty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you do a lot where you are in terms of just treatment, supporting, again, the help seekers, but research and all of the other ways that you're involved, which is so cool to be able to see it from so many perspectives, you know, helping people and getting the kind of human connection to it, but also the research and the numbers and the understanding things on the broader, more sort of meta perspectives of what's happening. Can you share a little bit about that, like prevalence and what you're seeing in your research as well? Yeah. So we did a study looking at what the numbers are. And so um, the study is the perinatal depression treatment cascade. Um, This was published several years ago now, but the numbers were staggering. So, I mean, the prevalence up to one in seven women will experience perinatal depression. Depends on the specific timing of onset and the literature that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. So roughly that's, you know, 10 to 15%. But then for some postpartum onset, we'll see even higher, like 20%, 21%, depending on which time frame you're looking at. And so it's exceedingly common. But despite it being so common, it's not all that common to recognize it and actually get treatment. So the numbers that we found, so 50 to 70% of women are going undiagnosed entirely, which is outstanding. And then we found that 85% are not getting any treatment at all. Of those that are being treated, 91 to 93% are not getting what's called an adequate treatment trial. We defined that as regular evidence-based psychotherapy or use of an antidepressant for six or eight weeks or longer at the starting dose or higher. And so many women are not being properly treated. And then 95 to 97% of women are not experiencing any remission of their symptoms at all. And what? it's wow, so, that's so sad. Granted, you know, the power of this study, it was mm-hmm. not highly powered enough to be like a full meta analysis. Mm-hmm. There's not tons of literature out there. So mm-hmm. perhaps this looks worse than it really is since it's not hugely powered. It's not tons of data. But regardless, it was shocking and mm-hmm. it pushes me so much to want to spread awareness because the more that we can properly diagnose and get women treated, it's as I mentioned before, what drew me to this field mm-hmm. is how these are treatable conditions. Right. We have good treatments. And so anytime I meet someone, I'm, I tell them, I will get you feeling better. We're going to get you feeling back to yourself. These are symptoms. This is not you, mm-hmm. you know, and so we can do much better. It's currently happening. Absolutely. We can. And adding to your point earlier, I mean, there's not enough research. So maybe it could be that those numbers are, you know, higher than they actually are, but how would we know? Because there's yeah. not enough research. I know you're on the forefront of getting some of that research done, but just how many people go and suffer and don't get any kind of help. It's alarming. Yeah, it really is. Especially because it's so treatable and you see it all the time. You see people get better. Yes, always. Yeah. So maybe making an assumption here, but I think in some ways that, you know, having information out there, having research out there and education out there obviously would help other providers know that it's a thing and it exists. Kind of going back to the, you know, the training that you had and maybe the lack of training that's available 
to everyone. And certainly I know that a lot of our systems have a long way to go and making sure we're educated on everything. But what do you think contributes to the lack of training in those earlier days of medical school? Well, I think for a long time, people just didn't, there was a general resistance, perhaps throughout our culture, that pregnant woman somehow didn't get sick like this, that Mm -hmm. kind of fairy tale, peaceful, sitting on a lily pad, you know, (laughs) just like having Uh that beautiful, perfect pregnancy, that stereotype that I think still affects a lot of women of what you think it should be versus what the reality is. But I think that permeated through in a lot of ways where a lot of professionals and physicians truly years ago, I think some people were saying pregnant women don't get depressed. And we realized that that is absolutely not the case. Mm -hmm. They do. There's pre-existing illness. And then there's also symptoms that will present for the first time during a pregnancy or postpartum. But I think maybe that stereotype and misunderstanding and that I think happens with a lot of women's health conditions in general So just kind of missing the mark there. But I think we're doing a lot better now. Mm -hmm. One of the projects that I was involved in at UNC was writing a textbook for clinicians, for medical students, residents, and not just in psychiatry specialization, but also OBGYN specialization. Oh, cool. That's great. To kind of understand how, you know, what are these conditions and how to treat them. So that even if you're in a program where you don't have a lot of subspecialty clinicians on staff, you can still access the educational tools yourself. That's a huge deal. Um, I think it is fun to work on. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) Well, you have a very special skill set of having fun working on textbooks. Yeah, well, (laughs) it was overwhelming. Also, it was also overwhelming. It was in the middle of the pandemic. So, you know, it's like, well, I guess now's the time to just (laughs) start chipping away at this. Yeah, absolutely. This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. 
All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. That's so important. I mean, that's where, you know, learning happens, at yeah. least initially before people are getting out into sort of being with people and feeling it out, that it's not getting that information to people who aren't just psychiatrists is hugely important because not everybody's meeting with a psychiatrist. They're getting information and support from their GPs or uh, yeah. their OBs yeah. first. Which is so important too. They're doing such great work also. It's important that they're able to feel confident and supported in treating these conditions. Yeah. Yeah. It's really exciting to know that it's just kind of like starting to be sewn into the fabric of training and education. And because to your point earlier, it's been missing for so very long. Yes. So when people do come to the clinic or finally reach you as a clinician, what kinds of things like what are some treatments and what are things that you're yeah. doing that do support people to feel better? Well, I'm very passionate about treating the full person and also the whole family needs to be thought about what kind of support system is available. A big part of my treatment plans is always sleep. And so problem solving on how the person can get rest and be supported if there is anybody else available. And that, you know, we get really creative of depending on how you're feeding, if you're breastfeeding, supporting that while still getting longer stretches of sleep. It just that really depends on the exact person, you know, in the specific oh, yeah. situation, but that's a huge part of things and making sure that they're maximizing self care. And it's so hard, you know, when you're juggling all of these things mm -hmm. to be thinking about doing things for yourself, but that, right. you know, the saying that self care is not selfish. Mm -hmm. It does take the full village. I think so often of the times we put so much expectation on ourselves and guilt and shame that we're, it's hard to ask other people for help. And so really also trying to help my patients advocate for themselves and reach out to any type of support system. Movement is always a big part of my treatment plan, low hanging fruits of making sure you're drinking enough water, eating enough protein. And then there's also a pharmacologic. So depending on somebody's symptoms, we'll prescribe medication and think through, I specialize in thinking through risks and benefits. If someone's mm -hmm. pregnant, mm -hmm. we talk through the risk of untreated symptoms and then the risk of medication. And we're trying to make the decision that nets the least amount of overall risk mm -hmm. and is the best choice for mom and baby. And if the symptoms are more moderate to severe, lots of times the symptoms themselves can be more harmful than taking certain medications that might really be beneficial for someone. And we'll do the same kind of risk benefit discussion in breastfeeding if someone's choosing to breastfeed mm -hmm. postpartum. 
So there's a role for medication for some women and then also therapeutic interventions. So I think feeling supported and doing some evidence-based psychotherapies is also hugely important. And, you know, research has shown great evidence for acceptance and commitment therapy, interpersonal therapy, CBT. And so I'll either do therapy with patients or I'll coordinate and collaborate with a therapist in the community. And so some people will just see me for shorter check-ins for medications, that kind of thing. And we'll see somebody else for weekly therapy, but those are kind of how the treatment plans tend to go. Sure. Right. It sounds like there are so many options, which is nice. I think people think of psychiatry, they feel like it's just one lane. They're just going to give me medication and blah, 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 which is, you know, also societally what people have kind of been fed to think that that's all psychiatry is. And it obviously is way more than that. When people are coming in to consult with you about medication, what are some of the things that you hear most often as like reasons that people are either concerned or afraid of medication or ways that they feel even ashamed about medication? One of the phrases I've heard a lot is, I don't want to do anything to harm my baby. So Mm -hmm. this is if someone's pregnant. And I remember one patient telling me, look, I'm not working. I'm having suicidal thoughts, but I'm not going to act on them. I would never do that. I'm really not functioning much, but I can just lay on the couch and grin and bear it. Like I just don't want to do anything that might cause harm for my baby. And I told her, I totally understand, but actually the symptoms you're experiencing themselves, this level of depression, untreated, even you just sitting on the couch and bearing it is possibly causing harm to the development of your baby. And so we have to weigh the risk of the symptoms themselves against the treatment options. So I think there's this misconception for some that the medicine is just going to be so harmful and uh, forgetting that I always I use my hands and say there's the symptoms and there's the medicine and we're but the symptoms we that that is a risk, you know, that you can't ignore. Mm -hmm. So I think that one common concern, other times someone's just very nervous of taking something that might change them, Mm. fearful of becoming like a zombie or not Mm. feeling like themselves. And my answer for that is then that's ever the response, then it's the wrong medicine, either it's too high of a dose, or just not the right medicine for them. But our goal is for them to still be themselves. At the end of the day, I hope they feel like they're taking their prenatal vitamin, that it's just another medication they're taking, but they feel like them. You should still be able to have some degree of anxiety. You should still be able to have some sadness if you know something sad happens, that I don't want anyone to be a robot. Right. right. But the medication can kind of help your bandwidth mm-hmm. and help your tolerance of different stressors and can help you engage in a more meaningful way and different therapeutic interventions if it's required, if your symptoms are such. Certainly some people don't require a medication. And if that's the case, you know, it's not like I'm pushing medicine on everybody, but if it could be helpful, it can help someone really excel and heal with different therapeutic interventions, but you need both. I don't recommend just taking the medicine without thinking about anything else. Right. I mean, I think it is, like you said before, people are coming from a place of wanting to protect their baby and do the right thing. And there's obviously some misconceptions around medication. Mm -hmm. And that I think you said that people feel like the medication is going to harm. Can you go back to the idea of the untreated symptom harm? Because right, this 
for people who are just learning about medication as an option, we're not taught that symptoms can be a risk for harm. And so people sometimes are, from my perspective, or anyways, when I hear is that they're not sure, they feel bad that they could be causing harm. Either case, yeah, what do you say to that? I know. And that's whenever I'm going over this, that's always my fear. And Mm -hmm. I always also say, look, I don't want you to feel guilty about this. The guilt is already a part of one of the symptoms of depression, right? Yep. So I don't want to shame someone or to make them feel badly. Um, I always say some degree of stress creates resilience and nobody lives in a vacuum and Mm -hmm. difficult things happen during a pregnancy and things will work out. But just understanding that when we're making a choice, it's kind of like if you're making a choice of treating other conditions during a pregnancy, like you get an infection, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to treat the infection. So these symptoms are arising and they're becoming more and more problematic. And so I share that one, because I think it's a part of how we decide whether or not someone gets the treatment. Mm -hmm. And two, as an empowering tool that it's okay, and it makes sense to appropriately treat this thing that's Mm -hmm. rising up. Sometimes I think it's kind of helpful to think of depression or anxiety as inflammation, we don't fully understand the etiology and what causes all of this. But as a a reference or a visual tool, I kind of think of it as inflammation in the brain that we're trying to like put that fire out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes medication can be helpful to put the fire out. Some of the the things that untreated symptoms are linked with, would it be helpful for me to kind of talk through? Okay, so yeah, that'd be great. Because right, I don't think people understand or know anyways, informationally, like what untreated symptoms are and why they would be harming anything. So the untreated symptoms themselves have been linked with small for gestational age babies, preterm delivery, miscarriage. There's some studies showing possible links with preeclampsia and other complications. And the medications themselves, if we're talking about SSRIs, some of those are also linked with miscarriage, small for gestational age, or preterm delivery. But we believe that the risk lies more heavily with the untreated symptoms themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The symptoms when they go untreated can also increase risk for substance abuse, impulsive behaviors, not taking as good of care of the pregnancy, less proper nutrition, not going to perinatal appointments on time. Mm -hmm. There's some links with various malformations, which I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Perhaps it's tied into lack of proper access to prenatal care. Maybe you're missing Mm -hmm. things. This is untreated symptoms. Untreated symptoms. effects of untreated symptoms, right. Untreated symptoms. And then another one is kind of nebulous, but toxic stress of the newborn. So this is one that I really caution that some degree of stress creates resilience and it's okay. It's okay to have some stress. But if your stress level is sky high and doesn't come down and your cortisol stress hormone stays super, super high, this has been linked to um, issues with the baby's brain architecture development in the pediatric literature. And from those babies that had toxic stress in utero, it was shown that the baby's brains had abnormal levels of cortisol through preschool age. So what that means, you know, those abnormalities in your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, what all of that means long term, we don't fully understand or know, but it's something that pushes us further towards 
treatment. Right. And then, you know, if the symptoms become really disabling, suicidal thoughts, that symptom of depression can be very impulsive and scary. And sometimes somebody becomes not in their right mind. And there can be psychotic symptoms that develop with a really bad episode of depression. And that's when we worry about infanticide and development of delusional beliefs about the fetus and those types of things. So there can be this snowball effect. And at the end of the day, happy, healthy mom, happy, healthy baby is my motto. And we want to help empower moms to feel their best. And this is a really stressful time of life. If you have symptoms while you're pregnant, the likelihood that you're, they're going to worsen once you deliver and your mm-hmm. hormones change postpartum is high. And so we want to empower them to be treated. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? laughing in the face of motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research and I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of TILT is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the TILT Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, You are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Uh, Thank you for that. It's so important for people to know that side of things. I think in combination with what you were saying before that, you know, we've been fed this idea that pregnancy and motherhood and birth and whatever is just this most magical thing, then if somebody's alternatively not feeling that way or feeling much worse than that, then there's a lot of shame and guilt associated with, which is already a contributor to feeling even worse. Yeah. And with, I see this most with anxiety, with really high anxiety that people will say, yeah, I'm sure it could help, but, or maybe it would help, but if anything happened to my baby, I would just blame myself. And that like the anxiety is so high that it prevents people from feeling better. It is therapeutically, it's hard to help somebody through such high anxiety, but I know that there is help for that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And sometimes I can't as a therapist help 
as much as I'd like to because the anxiety is so high. And once they yeah. have a medication that's supportive to them, then we can start working on the anxiety. Exactly. Have you right. seen that? And how do you, oh, absolutely. How do you manage yeah, absolutely. That's where the role where the gold standard of someone doing the best when the symptoms are that way, the medication can help their bandwidth and mm -hmm. help the stickiness of that anxiety lift a little bit so that they can participate more with you. And for that person, I try not to push someone, you know, but right. just encouraging them, I think involving them in this risk benefit discussion and involving yeah. the family and so that everybody feels lots of times if they have a partner, mm -hmm. and the partner can be involved and can kind of share the decision a bit so that it doesn't feel all on their shoulders and mm -hmm. all the blame on them. Mm -hmm. But I understand it too. the mom guilt and mom shame, everybody gets a little bit of that as a parent from mm -hmm. time to time too. It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah, it is. It's hard to see somebody suffering when you know they could feel better. I know. Even getting to the point of like meeting with a reproductive psychiatrist is uh, it's a whole process. It's intimidating. You're not like if you've never seen a psychiatrist and you're like, what is this? You know, am I going to go like lay on the couch and <laughs> she's going to like psychoanalyze me and I, you know, yeah. Pump you full of medications. Right. right yeah, right. yeah. No, it's not that at all. Yeah. But I do think that's like one of the reasons why it's so important to see a specialist, a reproductive yeah. psychiatrist, someone who has your training and understanding, because not all psychiatrists do get this training. Yeah. Other psychiatrists will refer patients that have not had the training as well. Yeah. So, you know, another reason why a specialist can be helpful, you know, thinking back to my own experience, this was kind of startling to me, but you know, I had my first daughter and the delivery as can happen when it's your first, especially, you know, I was going post dates and then induced and then I failed the induction and I was in labor and delivery for 36 hours and hadn't slept. And I think I pushed longer than four hours and ended up delivering in the operating room. And afterwards, I kind of took a step back and said, all right, I know I'm at high risk of postpartum depression. I haven't slept for 36 hours. I was delirious, exhausted. You know, at, at one point I developed an infection. I hemorrhaged, oh you know, gosh. they had to pull out the bear hugger machine that warms somebody up when they're turning blue. Like it was a whole production and, but everybody's okay. Everybody's healthy. And I asked my nurse, I delivered at a baby friendly hospital, which I think the baby friendly thing you know, in its ultimate goals of promoting skin to skin and promoting breastfeeding and all of that can be great. But when it gets too checky boxy mm -hmm. is disturbing to me when you're not thinking about the person in front of you and the situation. But I said to them, I love her. I feel connected. I hate to ask this, but I know that if I don't sleep right now, it's not going to be good for me. I'm so exhausted. Can you please take her to the nursery? And can you please give me a small amount? I won't be able to fall asleep. I'm like too <laughs> energized after all of this intensity. You know, it's 36 hours. Can you please give me a small amount of a medication? And I knew knew what to ask for. Uh -huh. So I asked for a small amount of medication to sleep and they were lovely and said, yes, but they said, we do need to document that you have postpartum depression. And I said, well, I don't, but I'm fine if you, you know, put whatever you want to put in my chart, but that, you know, that's just what we need to do. And they were nice about it, but I did feel shame and guilty and mm. weird asking for it. Yeah. And I said to my husband, you know, 
I can only imagine like all of these emotions I'm feeling and everything worked out. And I'm glad that I did that. That was so crucial. But it just really made me hurt for your average patient that, you know, here I am, reproductive psychiatrist. What if I didn't have that information or risk or no? I mean, because it was really hard to ask for those things. Um, But I'm so glad I did. But it made me, I really, I still haven't done this, but I would like to write a book for not a textbook, but a book for patients themselves of just tips of what you can do mm-hmm. to maximize your wellness and well-being mm-hmm. while you're pregnant and then during the delivery experience and postpartum because it made such a difference in me getting that that rest for in the sure. face of all of that. It's amazing that you could do that for, for yourself and I'm glad they were supportive. But wow, it's whatever is set up in the system that, that they have to say it's postpartum depression. Just in order to what? To like give you a medication or to take the the mother? I don't know. I think it's to use the nursery. And a lot of things are changing now too with COVID. They shut nurseries down many places. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like we need the nurseries, you know? Mm -hmm. And many women can't afford a doula or a night nurse when they get home to help Mm -hmm. them with protected sleep and support. And your hospital stay is your time to get some support and nurturing and Mm -hmm. education. And that's your time to sleep. And if you've been through a grueling labor or a surgery, Mm -hmm. and then you're just I understand they say rooming in is helping teach and all of this. But I think there's also been data showing accidents can happen and things too, sleep deprived new parents, even in the hospital. So it's my belief that that's a time where we can really support new parents and helping them get some protected sleep before they go home. Mm -hmm. So I'm all for a nursery and I don't understand why they're shutting down. I mean, I did a monetary thing, but I think that's money well spent. You could argue that untreated postpartum depression is very expensive not to treat it. It's actually been, there's a number. I don't have it in front of me, but I've written about it to try to compel. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, I so agree with you, at least to be able to give people a choice. Not that everyone has to send babies yeah, to the nursery. Yeah, but, totally. But um, it should be an option and depending on, and sometimes labor and delivery is a breeze and things are going well or you feel okay. And, you know, so yeah, absolutely. It doesn't need to be for everybody, but I nice for it to be an option. For sure. And it without, have to without be guilt or shame. <laughs> exactly. Without any judgment or shame, but just, oh, welcome. Would you like for us to take your baby, you know, and get a little bit of rest yeah. just for a minute? Yeah. For an sure. hour. Well, too, they're like, even during COVID, no, there was nobody else allowed in there. Maybe yeah. at some point partners were allowed in, but still, oh, it's just COVID was such a mess for mental health. Yeah. Really, really damaging. Well, I'm sure whenever you get to that book, it would be uh, appreciated because right, people don't know what they can ask for from a mental health perspective, let alone a physical health, right? uh, In those settings, the more empowered that people can be the better. Yeah, absolutely. And even with all that was going on for you, you had the knowledge and that knowledge is empowering in and of itself. So important. So I think a lot of people associate like meeting with a psychiatrist with meaning that they're going to have to take medication or that they're going to take medication. How do you handle that? That absolutely, I think, is a common 
thought, but it is absolutely not the case. Lots of times somebody might meet with me to discuss the risks and benefits of a possibility of a medication like we talked about before. And so I'll go over all of the data with them, all of the data with their spouse, and we'll talk through what different treatment plans might look like. And then maybe they want to think about it or they want to have the power and the knowledge of that to prepare them in case things worsen. So maybe they're feeling like things are manageable, milder, they're not feeling at the point yet where they need that, but they want to go ahead and have a relationship where they've met me, I know them, and we've thought through it. And then if things worsen, I can quickly send in a script, mm-hmm. they can start it, and we can have a follow up. But I do that frequently where someone will just meet me because their risk factors are higher. They've had some symptoms in the past. They feel they're managing okay. They're pregnant. And they just want to kind of, a lot of times if somebody's anxious, they're a planner and they kind of want to think through. And I think it makes good sense. And then that way, it's not like if things worsen and they feel they're in crisis, then they're looking to make an appointment because sometimes Mm -hmm. there can be a wait to get in. And then that way they're just known to me and, and we can work together. But I certainly, you know, this is my approach. And I think many psychiatrists are this way. I'm, I'm not trying to push medication on someone. And, you know, someone might come see me and want to explore other lifestyle modifications, therapeutic interventions, they're trying to get more sleep, and then we'll just kind of work together over time. And maybe other medication will come into the picture at some point, but it might not. So that's absolutely not a guarantee. When you're meeting with a psychiatrist, you can ask questions about medicine and explore if it's a possible option, but it's not something that is guaranteed. Yeah, thank you for talking through that because it's such a barrier already to feel like you're going to be stuck with something that you're potentially already like worried about or afraid of in the first place. So great. Consultation is an option and that doesn't have to mean anything. And I think another thing that's important too to think about lots of times somebody is nervous to start something because they feel like, what's the timeline here? I don't want to be on this the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And are they're kind of freaked out by that idea too. And so if someone's not pregnant, the minimum time of treatment of feeling well on a medicine. So the medicine can take typically, depending on what it is, roughly four to six weeks to reach steady state and work. I, my starting point is when someone's symptoms remit and they start to feel better. And then we would treat for six to nine months of feeling well outside of the perinatal period. If you're pregnant, your hormones are fluctuating and your hormonal access is fluctuating. So if you start something while you're pregnant, I treat through one year postpartum, or if you start postpartum through one year postpartum to give somebody's body and hormones the time to fully level back out. I treat a little bit longer than that if you breastfeed longer because I've seen postpartum depression onset with weaning. So there's some women who are just really sensitive to changes in hormones, not so much absolute levels of hormones, but changes. Mm. And so through a couple of months of weaning, so you are totally weaned, maybe one or two months later, we might start slowly tapering. And we do it gradually and slowly to make sure things don't come back. And if it comes back, we stop and you continue a little longer. But I support my patients to try to come off of the medication if that's their goal. But those are kind of the timelines to be roughly thinking through. In my opinion, that's the most prudent and cautious thing that minimizes disruptions and maximizes somebody being able to feel well and connect and be with Mm -hmm. their family. So those are kind of the timelines. Yeah, it makes it feel so much more approachable when you put it in those terms. And that's obviously what we want for people to feel like it's a possibility. It's a potential option for them that they can continue to explore. 
Right. And some people, I mean, these are like messy, chaotic years with little toddlers and people to take the medication for longer or even indefinitely. And those are okay options, but I think it's just helpful, but it's chaotic years. So some people opt to take the medication for longer with the chaos of little kids or even indefinitely. And those are options too, but I think it's helpful to know the minimal option also. Fantastic. So what's your, I guess, sort of message to people who are considering medication or meeting with their reproductive psychiatrist? My message is that it's not scary and that, you know, we're normal people, you know, (laughs) just like you. And I, my hope is that people that to dispel some stigma and to reduce shame and to carry hope that these conditions, while they're extremely common in that way, I mean, you're not alone, but they're so treatable. And, you know, I think the data that we found several years back shows that we haven't been doing the best job as a society of treating these conditions, Mm -hmm. but we absolutely can do better. And these are symptoms. This is not you as a person, I would say, and that there's hope to feel better and get back to yourself. Perfect. Thank you so much for that, yeah, for, for sharing you. all of your work. And I'm so glad you're out there doing this awesome stuff and helping people feel better. Thank you so much for having me. I loved talking with you. Thank you. You can learn more about Dr. Cox and her work at resetyourhealthandwellness.com. She is also on Instagram and Facebook, and I really encourage you to learn from reproductive psychiatrists what the options are, because when you have information, it really reduces the amount of stigma, and then you can make those informed choices for your health and get back to feeling better. For other tips and tricks and understanding of what's going on for you, go to my website, wellmindperinatal.com courses and find a course that fits your needs that you can listen to right now on demand and at your own pace whenever you need. I really, really hope it's helpful for you. Thank you so much for being with me. Until next time. Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.